Hey folks, this is Kevin. Just a few words before we start. This episode of Risk is brought to you by Shutterstock.com. With over 20 million high-quality stock photos, illustrations, vectors, and video clips, Shutterstock helps you take your creative projects to the next level. For 30% off your new account, go to Shutterstock.com and use our offer code RISK11. Also, with the holidays almost here, you don't have time to go to the post office with the traffic and the parking. It'll be packed with everyone mailing holiday gifts and packages. So take my advice. Use Stamps.com instead. With Stamps.com, you can avoid all the hassle of going to the post office during the holiday season. Everything you do at the post office, you can do right from your desk. You can buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer. You can print postage for any letter or package the instant you need it. It's so easy and convenient. I use Stamps.com for Risk and the Story Studio, and you should too. Right now, get this special offer when you use our promo code RISK. It's a no-risk trial, plus you get a $110 bonus offer. That includes a digital scale and up to $55 free postage. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in RISK. That's stamps.com, enter risk, and now, here's the show. Kids, this is Extra Risk, where we bring you just a little bit more of the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Orchestra... Oh, boy. Orchestra Popular de Peo Pyrrhus. Okay? That's, that's who it is behind me now. And I am absolutely certain that that is exactly how it's pronounced. Well, we're going to do something a little different on the show today. We have done it before. The whole thing where I sit down with someone who has recently shared a story on the show to kind of talk about what it was like to share it. On one of our very recent episodes called Live from Philly, Becca Trabin told a story that has, well, it's gotten just about as much of a reaction as any story we've ever run before. I think it, it, it is definitely one of the riskiest stories that we have had the honor of running so far. If by some chance you haven't heard that Live from Philly episode yet, never to fear, we are going to intercut the actual live story with the interview about it. Becca is actually a friend of mine. Going back a few years now, she is a stand-up comedian and writer living in Philadelphia. You can find her at B-E-C-C-A-T-R-A-B-I-N.com. And so, without further ado, here is the Becca Trabin interview about the story we call 
transcendent. So the first big decision you had to make was whether or not you were going to do this story at the live show. Uh, Well, when you booked me on the show, I was so excited for it. And I was trying to figure out what story to tell. And I knew that telling a story involving my bouts with mental illness would be interesting and would be something that I would like want to share and want to get off my chest. But I didn't know how deep into that I wanted to go because I had talked about the um, the whole first part of the story that the audience kind of laughed at where I was at college and I thought I was the Messiah and I did karaoke. That whole thing I have talked about on stage before and with friends before and I thought that would be a really cool engaging story to tell. But there's a super dark part of that story, which is everything that transpired the week afterwards. And I, I spent like weeks writing in this notebook. And, you know, my roommate, Matt, had um, a friend staying with us named Brian. He was staying with us for a week. And Matt and Brian were like hanging out all week, like drinking and schmoozing. And like they noticed that I was like locking myself in my room all day long and all night, writing in this ridiculous yellow notebook, scrawling away. Even like when Obama got reelected and gave his like big acceptance speech, I was in my room, not listening to the speech, just like writing. So finally, our house guest, Brian, was like, let me see this notebook that you're jotting everything down in. And I don't know, he just... He, he, he's like an improv teacher. He's kind of like a trustworthy, has that like energy of like jump and the net will appear. So I showed him the notebook and I hinted at there being more to the story than what was in there or, or that I had some reluctance to share the full story that was in my heart. And he just said to me, you know, you seem like you're into bravery. Why don't you just go ahead and be brave and like tell the story that's in your heart? And like the energy in the room changed when he said that. It was weird. And I realized that he was completely right. And that if I'm going to do this show, I need to tell this story. So for a few days, I like was like just running on that, like adrenaline of like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to stand up and like speak my truth. And I'm just going to let go of this bullshit, shameful secret that I've been carrying around. I'm just going to like, fuck it, like throw caution to the wind. And then and then like that lasted a few days I uh, got totally nervous and totally overcome by fear and was like, why would I want to make such a self-destructive move as to like put my own name to this terrible, horrific story? Like my mom spent thousands of dollars on lawyer fees so that I didn't have to live a life of shame and of people knowing that I had once been this violent, fucked up person. Why would I go and turn that around and like broadcast that to the world. That's masochistic. At the end of the day, what I take with me and who I am is based on like what I'm doing moment to moment. You know, if I'm a person on the subway who is like oblivious to her surroundings, that's who I am right then. If I'm a person on the subway who like gives up her seat to an old person or someone with a baby, that's who I am. And I'm not like this story. So I can choose to hang on to this story and protect it as though that's who I am. Or I can perceive myself as being someone 
who did that in the past, but that's not informing who I am now. So at my core, who I am is not this story. I should be taking actions out of confidence, not fear. And at the end of the day, I realized the confident move would be to tell this fucking story. <laughs> Please welcome Becca Trabin. So when I was uh, 20 years old, I was a sophomore in college at Bard College uh, in upstate New York. I, yes, I studied uh, philosophy and religion and got some philosophers here. Um, and, and I smoked a lot of pot. And not going for applause, but I'll take it. I smoked a lot of weed, and um, I isolated myself from my friends. No one's going to woo that? Uh, I completely isolated myself from my peers. Um, I was going through a lot, of, a lot of emotional pain at that age. So when I was two and a half, uh, my dad died. And um, at two and a half, I, it kind of hardwired me in like a strange way, like a way where I was kind of yearning. So when I was 20 years old, I hadn't really dealt with his death at all. And I, I realized that as I got the distance from my home that I hadn't, it was like this elephant in the room and I hadn't quite gone through the grieving process at all. Um, so as I was in college, I was kind of going through that grieving process in a very delayed fashion on my own. Um, and what I wanted was I wanted to transcend and I became obsessed with this idea of transcendence like letting go of the veil of Maya and having it revealed to me that everything in the world was an illusion and you know I, I wanted that to happen kind of because I wanted to get away from my own emotional pain that I'd built up over the years over the lifetime um, but it's easy when you study philosophy or religion or psychology to take your own emotional issues and just project it onto the universe. Um, but I wanted to transcend, and I thought that the way to do that was to take mushrooms, um, hallucinogenic drugs. I actually, I, I, I proposed, we were, uh, my friends and I were doing a three-person like theology tutorial, and I was like, guys, we need to tell these professors that we deserve to take mushrooms as part of this class. Because this is part of the deal. I don't want any dichotomy between being spiritual and studying spirituality. We're going to do this. It didn't, it didn't fly. It was really like the, wasn't it like the day of that you finally decided yes and for sure? How did that go down? Like the day before the day of? Um... Every time I set out to retell this story, I was crying and crying because every time I set out to just get this story down, my intention was to be as honest as possible and just for once to have complete integrity and retell this series of events exactly as it transpired. And in that process, I remembered so many details that were painful and that I had repressed and that I hadn't 
I hadn't thought of in years, like the whole part about my dog I'd forgotten about. And so each time I went to like work on this story, it was this process work. It was this healing work of like recounting and reliving things and letting the tears out and letting that like negative energy out, you know, that release. So the whole process leading up to this story was really intense and emotional. I even like called out of work a day because I was like exhausted and I knew that I was so heavy with emotions that if I didn't like get some rest, I was going to get sick. And I felt like for me, I had already done that work. You know what I mean? I like the process itself was enough for me. So I felt that if I want to tell a story about some shit that happened to me at summer camp, that's like funnier and lighter, I can and should do that. So I, I got that story together. Um, the summer camp story. Yeah, the summer camp story. When I was in, and, and, you know, it's funny in hindsight because um, my friend Bradley called me the night before the show and asked me how my writing was going. So I told him that I changed my mind and I was going to do my summer camp story because it was just too much and I'd been crying and it was too intense. And he got so indignant and was like, I paid $25 and took the day off of work to see your show and you're going to tell your fucking poopy pants story about when you were 12 at summer camp? Fuck you. <laughs> Uh, um so i get i actually gave him a nod in the story because he was in the front row so i called the officer in the story officer bradley but i you know i realized he was right and it's i'm really glad that i have friends who push me when i need to be pushed you know um so the next morning the day it was the either the day before the show or the day of the show i just woke up and it was like this zen-like thing where I just like, as soon as I woke up in the morning, I knew what I had to do. And I reached over and picked up my phone before I even got out of bed. I was just lying in bed and I picked up my phone and hit like the audio recorder um, app and just told this story for 10 minutes. And Kevin, I had been writing night and day this other bullshit story trying to be clever and I'd spent hours and hours doing it. And when I just cut that shit out and I just woke up one morning and spoke the truth plainly, it just came right out. It was the easiest, most effortless thing in the world. Uh, I took shrooms and I'd never taken them before and it was okay for a couple hours and then the come down was really terrible and I felt suicidal for the first time in my life. I, I actually took the shuttle bus into the nearest town to get rope to hang myself, and also ice cream and Snickers bars, because I never afforded myself that luxury. Um, but I ended up just coming home with Snickers bars and ice cream, because the, um, the hardware store was closed for the night. Um, thankfully. Uh, yeah. And the next morning, I woke up. And I was still really confused, and I had more mushrooms, and you shouldn't buy mushrooms in bulk when you don't have good self-control on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and so I took more mushrooms just because I, I was so fucking confused, and I wanted to escape that feeling of confusion, and I wanted all this stuff to go away, and I wanted to almost like get to the next level of a video game where everything you know before doesn't count, and I see it as, as bullshit, and all that deep pain inside is gone. And um, it didn't work out like that. Uh, I, I, I was so hyper-religious that um, I, I drew a somewhat, uh, I'll grant you, illogical conclusion that I was, in fact, the Messiah. <laughs> uh, 
Guys, my birthday is December 24th. It's close. It's close enough. I don't know. Um, no. And I told, I told my, my relativism professor, I saw him outside the dining hall, I think I'm the Messiah, which you would think would be like really awesome news. Like, good for you. Hey, here she is. Um, but I told it to him like I was agitated and confused because deep down a seed inside of me knew that that was not correct. Um, so I told it to him as though I was like, I pooped my pants. Like, it made no sense. Um, and he rightfully sent me to the guidance counselor who sent me to the hospital. And I was in the hospital for a few days. It was great. It was a nice, it was a nice manic hospital visit. They had karaoke. I did getting jiggy with it. I'm not lying to you. The first time I've ever been able to do karaoke was in a mental hospital because I had no walls left. Um, I mean, I was concerned that it was going to be okay for you to share it. Yeah. But what I was thinking of in a bigger picture was the effect that it might have on other people, the impact that it might have on other people's lives. Because in my own experience, mm -hmm. when I've shared particularly revealing stories where I felt like, oh, I'm really out on a limb here. Yeah. I'll spend a lot of time getting all wrapped up in me, me, me. And then it'll be later that I'll realize, oh, it was about more than me. It ended up having a real mm -hmm. effect on someone else's lives because I'll start getting feedback from them. Did you have any sense of that or, or any feelings about that whole issue while you were preparing it? Um, when I was preparing this story, I really wanted to make sure that I was doing it for myself, actually. I needed to know from me that I wasn't giving this whole thing of myself to other people in some weird misguided attempt at like being a martyr and sacrificing my own like, you know, name and life for like affecting everyone else, you know? And then when people told me that they were really deeply affected by it, that was a surprise. I wanted to affect people, but people were like really deeply affected by it. And that, I guess I didn't really anticipate. It's funny because the more you just do things for yourself and the more you respect and honor yourself, the more it just like gives other people permission to do the same thing. And the more like deeply you go into your own shadow or your own darkness or your own pain, the more that feels like shared, you know what I mean? So it gives other people the permission or inspiration or whatever to do that for themselves. And then we all get to this place where it's like, oh, like, that's not, that thing wasn't even mine. That's a collective thing. Maybe that's like a systemic thing that happens in the world, in my culture, or just that's a group thing that like, I don't have to bear that. You know, it's funny because I listened to this story like a bunch of times for a couple of days. I would just played a couple of times a day. And I realized if I were some stranger hearing this story, I wouldn't be like, that girl's fucked up. Like, whoa, like that's way too intense for me. You know, I would hear that and I would be moved by it. And I would be like, wow, that kind of takes brass balls. And that's kind of like a really brave move. And that shows a lot of like integrity to like stand up and share that like shit. 
it's like a totally human thing to take something bad and make it into something good. And I had that desire inside of me to take something bad from my past and turn it into something that could be good or at least something to neutralize it. And so I let that happen. And I let that happen by telling this story and by going through the storytelling process and now by talking about it here. Uh, it was all well and good until, you know, uh, they released me a couple of days later and my mom came to pick me up and she was fucking pissed. This was finals week and she was pissed that instead of studying for my finals, I was taking matters into my own hands and taking shrooms and getting hospitalized. And I got sent home and um, it's kind of a blur, but um, the first... The couple days I was home, I, I remember just her anger seemed like this evil force to me. Like, I mythologized it. Like, it wasn't just my mom so angry and I feel alienated from her. It was like, this creature is, like, different. This is something that I don't know. This is a force that I don't recognize. And I, I unfortunately found a joint in my art history book, in the pages of my art history book. I used to save some for later so I don't, wasn't like fiending, like finding little pieces out of the carpet. Anyway, um, whatever. Um, I smoked a joint and I just detached, you guys. I just, here's reality, and I just floated off away from it. And uh, my mom could tell that something was really severely wrong with me because I was so confused and agitated and anxious. I had written in my body, like with highlighter all over, like weird religious sayings. And I actually went into the garage and like wanted to light myself on fire with gasoline, but I couldn't find a good place to do it because we lived on a cul-de-sac. And there were like neighbors everywhere mowing their lawns. And I was like, you know, if I set myself on fire, someone's going to find me. I'm going to get burnt. It's, I'm not going to die. I'm going to have this just part of me will die and it won't be a good part. And she, got, she took me to a doctor. She, my mom took me to a doctor that, that day with all the highlighter on me. And I begged the doctors. I, I looked at, upon everyone with complete mistrust. I thought that everyone was sinister and lying. And I thought that they were imposters. Like, almost like, um, what's that movie? Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Where someone had taken over their bodies. And I didn't trust any of these doctors. And I begged them. Can I, can I just have an anxiolytic? Can I have an anti-anxiety pill? I don't know what's real. I don't know what's going on. I just need an anxiety drug. And they said no, because it was habit forming, and I had a drug habit. Is the overall effect feeling like you can see clearly now? Um, dude, I mean, it's only been a couple weeks, but like it totally had this amazing effect on me. Yeah, like after it happened, my mom would tell me, this is just a blip on the radar of your life. This is just a little blip. There's, you have so much more to live for. This isn't going to define you. This doesn't have to define your life. You're going to see that you're going to experience so much in the world. And I thought she was full of shit. I said, there's no way that this is a blip. This is not a blip. This just ruined my life. You know what I mean? And since telling the story... For the first time, it's happened seven years ago, and for the first time in my life, I do feel like it's a blip. Do you know what I mean? I feel like it has like this blip potential that it didn't have before because I carried it around with me. Everyone I met, I felt like, well, you know, once they get to know this terrible thing that I did and that I went through, they're going to find me unlovable, and they're not, 
I'm not going to find true love, you know what I mean, or true acceptance because of this story that I have to kind of hide from people, you know. So in the seven years since that happened, I've probably told like a dozen people about it, like, you know, gone into detail. And then leading up to the story, I told a couple people and then I told 300 people at once. But I've told more people in passing in the three weeks since the story than I did in the seven years since it actually happened. Do you know how freeing that is, dude? That's like, I feel like really good. There's something about secrets that where they start to feed on themselves. They start to build on their own power. When we know we're holding a secret, it starts to kind of cloud over other things. We were talking before about how in the Gospel of Thomas, which isn't in the regular Bible, but Jesus is quoted there as saying, if you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. What do you think of that? That's crazy. That's crazy to hear in this moment right now. I don't want to be destroyed. I guess I, I, I need to start bringing everything forth that I have within me. <laughs> what do you have for lunch? <laughs> oh, goodness. <laughs> With some hummus, some chocolate. I better really bring it fucking forth. <laughs> that night, I went to bed... And I was, I was talking to this voice, or this voice came into my head. And I don't know exactly what it was. It was some hybrid between my dad, my dead dad, who I wanted to reconnect with, and like the patriarchal Judeo-Christian God. And the, I was just so upset about my mom, and I didn't trust her, and I thought she was trying to poison me. And I asked the voice what it was, and the voice came into my head, and it said, the woman you believe to be your mom is not your real mother. Your real mother is dead, and she killed her. And she will kill you, and she can hear us right now. And I was like, what? I said, what do I do? And it said, you need to be brave. And so I thought, at the time... I need to be brave. I need to kill this creature that took over my mom's fucking body and is plotting to kill me and is reading my thoughts. I need to be brave and kill this creature before it, like, poisons me again tomorrow. And I was brave. I went downstairs, and I opened the drawer in the kitchen, and I got out a steak knife. And luckily, the big utility knife, the good quality knife that we have was in the dishwasher that night. I got a steak knife. And I walked up to my mom's bedroom, and she was lying there, and she sat up. And I took the knife, and I stabbed it into her back. And I stabbed her again and again and again. And she gasped like that. Like, if, almost if you, like, dump someone in a freezing cold water all of a sudden, that, <gasps> like, just that human need for air. And it was the most viscerally disgusting noise on the planet, is the sound of a knife going into human flesh. And I stabbed her, and she screamed, Becca, no, stop, stop. 
stop it. What are you doing? Becca, stop. And I didn't stop. I screamed, you're not my mother. You're not my mother. You're not my mother. And I stabbed her again and again. And somehow we ended up in the hallway. And in the hallway, the light was on. And I could see that there was blood everywhere. And I knew that something was just weird. And I wasn't being brave. And I wasn't doing the right thing. And we had a yellow lab, the sweetest dog on the planet, Lila. And Lila came up to us as I was attacking my mom and just cutting her with a knife and telling her she wasn't my mom and telling her she had to die for what she did. And the dog just came up to us, and she was the sweetest dog, and she didn't bark. She didn't do anything. She just was present, and she was her calm self. And the dog just came and inserted herself in between me and my mom. And I looked at the dog, and I knew... Since I didn't want to hurt the dog, I knew that something was wrong. I'm not a violent person. If I don't want to hurt this dog, why am I trying to kill this person, even if it's a demon as a person? And my mom's family friend, her, her long-term boyfriend from my childhood, was staying over that night because my mom was worried about me. And he came up the stairs and took the knife from me and was like, what are you doing? And I, I fought him. I wrestled him. Somehow we ended up on the steps, and I was wrestling him. He was trying to get the knife away from me. And I just, like, started humping him. And I was like, what, do you want to fuck me? Is that what you want? You want to fuck me? And he was like, Becca, look at me. And to this day, he says, he thinks that I was possessed. He says that there was something else there that wasn't me. I don't, I don't know. Um, but he called the police, and the cops came, and... Uh, they took me away, and I, my, I remember just sitting there when my mom was covered in blood, and she was waiting for an ambulance. The cops got there first, and they took me away, and I was kicking and screaming in the back of the cop car, and the one officer was just like so like mean and like he had seen it before and he was like oh this fucking crazy bitch is taking off her pants because I took off my pants and I was and the other officer turned around and he made eye contact with me and he said, Becca, my name is Officer Bradley. I'm your friend. And it calmed me. It was the only thing that just, something clicked and it just caught, like, like what in this scared universe I have a friend? Like, but the calmness just made me more confused. And so they took me to an emergency services place. And I remember the girl cleaning blood out from under my fingernails was so gentle and I felt like a monster and this gentleness that she was giving me was so strange and um, I mean I was, I was in an inpatient unit for three weeks which was almost as traumatic as the attack itself it was really bad that I didn't have access to sunlight for three weeks and it was just it was freezing and terrible and, and I was terrible, and um, I was in an outpatient unit for a couple months after that. And um, guys, I came out of it. Like, gradually, over the course of several years, I, through my behavior, I showed to my loved ones that I'm not schizoaffective or schizophrenic, and I don't have bipolar disorder, and people don't have to fear me. I'm okay, you know? And that took several years to do. 
Um, and I'm so glad it, I, I came out of it. And uh, I'll leave you with this. I will never forget the first time I saw my mom after it happened. She came to visit me in the hospital. And she was, she was the most like vulnerable person that I've ever seen in the world. She just was, she had cuts all over her. They weren't scars, you guys. They were open wounds. They were cuts and they were all over her. And I didn't even remember just attacking her everywhere, but I had. And she came into the hospital and she, she you know, she had already lost her husband and now this. And she's sitting there and there's all these doctors around. And my family doesn't like doctors because the doctors before who wouldn't give me the pill and my dad died from malpractice. And my mom said, um, I'll never forget, she said, she said, I don't care how much it costs. I don't care what it takes. I just want Becca to get better. And I got better. And my alarm is going off. Our time is up, you guys. Thank you. <laughs> what an abrupt ending. Well, yeah, I mean, one of the things yeah. that I love about this telling of this story is that there is so much that is such live theater about it. That was a mistake. You had your phone on the stage with you and you mm -hmm. forgot to silence it and it was telling you time's up. Mm -hmm. We can really appreciate that it doesn't feel written and memorized, mm -hmm. it feels like, holy shit, have things gone off the rails? Where? What's going to happen next? It has a real live theater feel to it. Having heard you tell the story before, running it by me before the show, I was blown away backstage by the extent to which you seem to be reliving parts of it. I mean... You become your your mother's voice yelling at you. You become you yelling at your mom. There, yeah. like it really becomes drama. We can really hear it happening in your voice. I mean, it's the kind of thing that's so intense that each time you tell it, whether or not you want to relive it, you kind of do. You know what I mean? It's the kind of thing that was so uh, sensitive and so close to my heart that each time I practiced the story and rehearsed it, I would cry. And so I ex I fully expected that to happen on stage. I, of course, I would effortlessly get choked up if I'm talking about, like, hurting my mom, who I love, and, like, my fucking dog, you know? It's, it's so super intense. You did the show. Yeah. You had feelings about it. Yeah. And then we went through a week where you had to decide whether or not we were going to be allowed to put it on the podcast. And I know you talked to your mom. I did. I talked to her about it, and she said that I was making a really big mistake, that I was not making a good decision by telling that story on the podcast. Yeah, once she assured me that she was worried for my sake, then I thought, well, I can go ahead and tell it, you know, because I'm weighing it out in terms of my life. I can go ahead and tell that story. And then... Like, the night of the show afterwards, I felt really, like, hollow and empty and, like, it wasn't cathartic like I thought it would be, you know? And my best friend Stephanie was there, and I told her, like, I feel like I'm supposed to be feeling happier than this right now, and I'm not. And it's, I don't understand. 
what what went wrong or what happened and she said becca you're not supposed to feel anything at any point in time from anything at all you're not supposed to feel anything and i was like oh yeah okay so i guess how i feel is how i feel and and it's measured against all the expectations and hopes and fears that i had surrounding this situation that's all yeah and how do you feel now about what you think other people are perceiving of it people who loved me and people who had just met me for the first time and people who i sort of knew came up to me afterwards and said thank you for sharing or you know my one friend andrea was bawling her eyes out oh my goodness I, my, like, like, my hope in telling the story was that I, like, make people in the audience cry, but it turns out all of the tears just went to my one friend, Andrea. She cried for weeks, but she is such a sweetheart, and she has um, a one-and-a-half-year-old daughter who I babysit, and, like, part of that thing I was holding in was that, like, people won't trust me with their children. Like, I'm not a trustworthy person. I'm sick and I have to be, like, you know, watched after. But to have the person who I babysit for be like, I loved you before and now I see what you've gone through and I have a deeper love for you and I'm really moved and I can't believe you went through that and I feel so sad and, like, like it brought us closer together, you know what I mean? So t- for her specifically to have been, like, crazy emotional crying for a couple weeks afterwards felt I don't want to say felt good that she cried but I felt really awesome that like we bonded and that like like brought us closer together then over the course of like a week or so I realized that like like there weren't enough tweets coming in saying that people had been moved by my story and there weren't enough emails coming in and I was like so hungry for feedback And I realized the only one single solitary person that really needs to weigh in and give me some assurance and some positive feedback is me. That's it. And I listened to it again and again. I was like, I actually sound like heroic. You know what I mean? Like this, holy fuck, this is like truly heroic. And for me to admit that to myself and now to be admitting it on a microphone to like whoever is so weird because my whole life I was like trying to like be ahead of people who might dislike me and hate me you know by being like oh no it's okay I don't like myself either so if you don't like me like you're you know get in line but like that's so oh that's so shitty and it's such a waste of life especially after I do something so incredibly life affirming as to stand in the ground of my own truth and be like yes when i was 20 years old you guys i stabbed my mom it was really heinous to like stand up and just say like this is something that happened to me i don't think there's anything more beautiful and honest than just standing up and saying this is my experience this is what happened as i experienced it i'm not trying to make any claims for anyone else i'm telling you my experience it needs nothing to validate it. It needs nothing to justify it. So for me to stand up and do something that self-affirming and that life-affirming and then try to turn around and be like, no, that was self-destructive. Like, that's going to come back to bite you. You know what? Maybe it will. Maybe, like, someone's going to listen to this 30 years from now and, like, not hire me for some whatever job, you know, or maybe three years from now, maybe three weeks from now, I don't know. But, you know, that's like probably not my path anyway. 
I know that I've been much more aware recently of actions that I take based on fearful thoughts or feelings that I have versus actions that I take based on confidence or love or trust or all that good stuff, you know? One of the things I was going over in writing this story was I was thinking, Jesus Christ, there's so many risks that I did not take in my life. And most of them are so minuscule, but they add up. And most of them are like a lack of confidence in um, my own deservingness of love, you know? So like there's so many moments where like I wanted to hug someone or kiss someone or approach someone and I didn't, you know? And I was like that like tiny little fear of rejection just grew and grew and grew and like metastasized. And I feel like that is really part of what led to this whole ridiculous incident like when you don't take these little risks towards love you end up having to take these big crazy risks in the other direction and that's like totally maybe an oversimplification but um I don't know I try to like take those like little moments more seriously like those little nitty-gritty daily risks you know like saying hello to someone or like after you say hello, saying how are you, or like after you saying how are you, like stopping on the street, you know what I mean? Or like after having a good conversation with a stranger, like asking for their phone number, like those little tiny fucking little things. I try to take those like more seriously now. And I try to make those like my risks. And not beating yourself up if you (laughs) fail to. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah, no, that's no touche. on the line it's risky people love to tear that down let them try do it anyway risk it anyway and if you're paralyzed by a voice in your head it's the standing still that should be scaring you instead go on and do it anyway do it anyway there will be times you might leave before you look There'll be times you'll like the cover And that's precisely why you'll love the book Do it anyway Do it anyway Tell me what I said I'd never do Tell me what I said I'd never say Read me off the list of the things I used to not like But now I think are okay That is all for this week Thanks to Becca for that. And this is Ben Folds 5 behind me now. Don't forget that at Shutterstock.com, you will find the perfect image or video for your next creative project. Whether it's for your advertisement, your website, your publication, a video you're creating, you can choose from over 20 million high-quality images and video clips. Shutterstock gives you sophisticated tools so you can search and drill down by subject, type, gender, emotion, color, and more. We used Shutterstock to create the risk-show.com website. You can start a free account today, and once you decide to purchase, use the offer code RISK11. New accounts receive 30% off any package. 
That's Shutterstock.com. 30% off new accounts. Use the offer code RISK11. Don't forget, we are live in Los Angeles on December 20th at the Nerd Melt Theater with Aisha Tyler and Guy Branham. And that same night, December 20th, at the Pit in New York City, we have Liz Winstead and Mara Wilson. Always go to risk-show.com slash tour to find out more about our live shows. Comment about us on iTunes, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Risk Show, and help support us by becoming a member at MaximumFun.org. When you become a member at Maximum Fun, it comes back to us. We are listener-supported. You'll find a hell of a lot more worth listening to at MaximumFun.org, and you'll find a forum where you can join in on the conversation about each episode of Risk. I'm there answering questions and discussing stories from the show with fans. Don't forget that we teach this stuff also at thestorystudio.org. Workshops on storytelling for business or just for pleasure, one-on-one coaching, coaching over webcam via Skype and Google Hangouts. There's a ton of different ways to delve deeper into the craft of storytelling at thestorystudio.org. That is actually how Becca Trabin got her start in a story studio workshop. And you can too. We'll be back next week with the first of our holiday specials. Until then, folks, today is the day. Take a risk. Do it anyway. Do it anyway. Do it anyway.